Chapter Twenty Three of Captain Antifer by Jules Verne. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Joe Denoya, Somerset, New Jersey. Chapter Twenty Three. Never had Tregamate imagined the day would come when he'd be walking with Jewel on the keys of Dakar, the ancient capital of the Gorian Republic, and yet that is what he did on this particular day, visiting the port, protected by its double jetty of granite rocks, while Antifer and Zambuco as inseparable as Ben Omar and Saouk, went up to the French agency. A day is amply sufficient for seeing the town. There's nothing very interesting about it, a rather good public garden, a citadel affording quarters for the garrison, and Bel Air Point, on which is an establishment to which are sent those suffering from yellow fever. If our travelers were to remain many days in this country, which is Goree for its capital and Dakar for its chief town, the lapse of time would appear interminable. But it is as well to keep a good heart against ill fortune, as Tregamane and Jewel said to one another. And meanwhile they strolled along the wharves and up and down the sunny streets, which are kept in good order by convicts, under the supervision of a few warders. The only things that interested them were the ships, these bits of herself which France sent from Bordeaux to Rio de Janeiro. These steamers of the Massageries Imperialis, as the line was called in 1862. Dakar was not then the important station it has become today. It possessed some 9,000 inhabitants with a tendency to increase its population, owing to the important works in progress for the improvement of the port. If the bargeman had never made acquaintance with the Mbembaris Negroes, he had now an easy opportunity of doing so, for these natives swarmed in Dakar. Thanks to their dry, nervous temperament, their thick skulls, their woolly hair, they were able to support with impunity the fierceness of the Senegalian sun. Tregamane had hung his square handkerchief behind his head as the best substitute he could find for a sunshade. Good gracious, it is hot, he exclaimed. I really was not made to live in the tropics. This is nothing, Tregamane, replied Jewel. When we are in the Gulf of Guinea, a few degrees below the equator. I shall melt for a certainty, replied the bargeman, and I shall take nothing back to my country but skin and bones. And, said he with the sweetest of smiles as he mopped his face, it would be difficult to take home less. You are much thinner than you were. Think so? Bah! I have a margin yet before I am reduced to a skeleton. In my opinion, it is better to be thin in countries where the people feed on human flesh. Are there any cannibals on the Guinea coast? Not many. At least I hope not. Well, my boy, do not tempt the natives by being too fat. Who knows if after island number two, we have to be off to island number three, in countries where people feed on each other. As in the islands of the Pacific? Yes, there the inhabitants are anthropophagous. He meant to say philanthropophagous, if he had been capable of inventing the word, for in these countries it is out of pure gormandizing that the natives eat their kind. But to think that Captain Antifer would be so obstinate as to let this madness for the millions drive him to such distant spots was not admissible. Certainly his nephew and his friend would never follow him there, and would prevent him from entering on such a campaign, even from having to shut him up in a lunatic asylum. When Tregmane and Jewel returned to the hotel, they found Antifer and the banker. The French agent had received them cordially, but when they asked for a vessel bound for Luango port, his answer was not encouraging. The steamers engaged in the trade are very irregular, and under any circumstances do not call it Dakar more than once a month. There was a weekly service between Sierra Leone and Grand Bassam, but from there to Luango was a long way further. The first steamer was not due at Dakar for a week. How unfortunate! A whole week for him to spend in his town chafing at his bit. And would have to be of well-tempered steel, this bit, 
to resist the teeth of Captain Antifer, who is now chewing down a pebble a day. It is true that there is no want of pebbles on the African beach, so that Antifer would have no difficulty in supplying his wants. We cannot avoid remarking that the week at Dahar was long, very long. The walks about the harbor, the excursions to the brook at the east of the town, had very soon exhausted their charms. Such patience was required as only an easy philosophy could give, but with the exception of Tregomain, who was remarkably gifted in this respect, Antifer and his companions were neither patient nor philosophical. If they blessed Kamalik Pasha for having chosen them for his heirs, they cursed him for the caprice by which he had buried the heritage so far away. It was really too much to send them to the Gulf of Oman, and now they had to go to the Gulf of Guinea. Why could not the Egyptian have found a quiet little island in the European seas? Was there not one in the Mediterranean, in the Baltic, in the Black Sea, in the North Sea, with every convenience for the stowage of three casks? Really, the Pasha had indulged in quite a plethora of precautions. But so it was, and if you'd like to abandon this treasure quest, abandon it? See what a reception you would have had from Antifer and Zambuco, and even the notary held in the grip of the violent Sauk. The bonds which attached these companions to each other were being visibly relaxed. These were three distinct groups, Antifer and Zambuco, Omar and Sauk, Jewel and Tregomain. They lived apart, meeting each other only at mealtimes, avoiding each other during their walks. They sorted themselves out into twos, and seemed as though they would never combine in the final sextet, which could only result in abominable cacophony. As regards the Jewel and Tregomain group, we know the usual subject of the conversation, the infinite prolongation of the voyage, the gradual widening of the separation between the lovers, the fear that so many researches and fatigues could only end in a hoax, the state of Antifer's sanity. All of them causes of regret for the bargeman and Jewel, but made up their minds not to withstand him and to follow him to the end. As regards the Antifer and Zambuco group, what a curious study these two future brothers-in-law would have made for a moralist. One, up to then of simple tastes, living a quiet life in a quiet town, with the philosophy natural to a retired sailor, now a prey to the lust for gold, his mind deranged by this mirage of millions gleaming under his eyes. The other, already so rich, but having no other care than to heap riches on riches, exposing himself to so many fatigues, to so many dangers even, in the endeavor to increase the heap. A week to get rusty at the bottom of this hole, said Captain Antifer, and who knows if this wretched steamer will not be late. And then, said the banker, our ill fortune makes us land at Loango, and thence go up fifty leagues to Moyumba Bay. It is uneasy about the end of this road, said the irascible Antifer. Enough to make you uneasy, observed the banker. It is no good anchoring till we reach the roadsteads. Let's get to Loango, and then we will see. We might persuade the captain of the steamer to put in at Mayumba. It would not take him far out of his way. I do not suppose he would consent, and he is not likely to be allowed to do so. If we were to offer him an indemnity, he might suggest to the banker. We will see, Zambuco, but you are always thinking of what never occurs to me. The essential is to arrive at Luango, and from there we can get to Mayumba. At least we have legs, and if necessary, and there is no other way of leaving Dakar, I should not hesitate at going round by the coast. On foot? Yes, on foot. He spoke quite airily. But the dangers, the obstacles, the impossibilities of such a journey. He might think himself lucky to be able to find a steamer, and thus avoid the perils of the journey. Not one of those who accompanied him on such an expedition would have returned. 
and Talisman Zambuco would have waited in vain at home in Malta for the return of her too audacious husband that was to be. And so they had to resign themselves to the steamboat, which could not arrive for a week. But how long seemed the hours spent at Dakar? Quite different was the conversation of Saouk and Ben Omar. Not that the son of Murad was less impatient to reach the island and carry off the treasure of Kamalik Pasha. His thoughts were concentrated on the way in which he would best rob the legatees. He intended to carry this out on the return from Sahar to Muscat. Now he would attempt it on the return from Mayumba to Luongo. Certainly his chances had improved. Among the natives and interlopers, he ought to find a few fellows capable of anything, even the shedding of blood, if necessary, who would manage this matter for him. And the prospect of this terrified the pusillanimous Ben Omar, less from delicacy of feeling than from fear at being mixed up in such an affair. He made a few timid suggestions. He remarked that Captain Antwerp and his companions were men who would sell their lives dearly. He insisted on the point that no matter how much they would paid them, the scoundrels he employed will talk about it sooner or later, that the truth is always found out at last regarding the massacre of explorers in any part of Africa. His arguments were directed, in fact, not against the criminality of the attempt, but arose from fear of being found out, the only reason which could stop such a man as Saouk. But they had no effect on him. Giving the notary one of these looks which chilled the very marrow in his bones, he said, I only know of one imbecile who is capable of betraying me. And who is that? You, Ben Omar. Me? Yes, and take care, for I know how to make people hold their tongues. Ben Omar trembling in all his limbs, bowed his head. One corpse more or less on the road from Mayumba to Luango would not embarrass Sewu, as he well knew. The expected steamer dropped anchor at Dakar in the morning of the 12th of May. This was the Sintra, a Portuguese vessel bound with passengers and goods to San Paul de Luanda, the important Lusitania colony of tropical Africa. She regularly stopped at Luango, and as she started early next morning, Antwerp's companions at once booked their berths. As her speed was only from nine to ten knots, the forge would last a week during which Ben Omar would suffer as usual. Having dropped a few passengers at Dakar, the Sintra started next morning in fine weather, with the breeze blowing off the land. Antifer and the banker heaved an immense sigh of satisfaction, as if their lungs had not been working for a week. This was the last stage before setting foot on island number two, and putting their hand on the treasure it was guarding so carefully. The attraction the island exercised on them seemed to become more powerful as they approached it, conformably to natural laws, increasing inversely as the square of the distance. And at every turn of the screw of the Sintra, the distance decreased. As for Jewel, it increased. He went farther and farther away from France, from Brittany, where Enogate sat in sorrow. He had written to her from Dakar as soon as he arrived, and the poor girl would soon learn that her lover was farther away from her than ever, and could fix no date as to a probable return. So tried to find out what passengers were to be landed at Luongo. Among these adventurers, with consciences untroubled by scruples or remorse, who were in search of fortune in these distant lands, were there any who knew the country and were likely to become his accomplices? His Excellency could not find any. He would have to choose his rascals when he reached Luongo. Unfortunately, he could not speak Portuguese, neither could Ben Omar. This was embarrassing, as he had the treat of delicate matters, and expressed himself quite clearly. Antifer, Zambuco, Tregomain, and Jewel were reduced to talking among themselves, for no one on board spoke French. There was one whose surprise was equal to his satisfaction, Ben Omar to wit. 
To say he felt no discomfort during his voyage on the Sintra would be untrue. But at the same time, the intense suffering he had frequently experienced was now spared him. The Sintra kept within two or three miles of the coast. The sea was calm, and she felt very little of the swell on the open sea. This continued after she had doubled Cape Palmas, the extreme point of the Gulf of Guinea. As often happens, the breeze followed the line of the coast, and the gulf was as smooth as the ocean. But the Sintra had to lose sight of the land when her course was laid for Luongo. The traveler saw nothing of Ashanti land, nor of Dahomey, nor even the summit of Mount Cameroon, which rises for some 12,000 feet beyond Ferdinando Po on the confines of Upper Guinea. In the afternoon of the 19th of May, Tregermain became somewhat excited. Jewel told him he was about to cross the equator. For the first time, for the last, no doubt, the bargeman was about to enter the southern hemisphere. What an adventure for him, the mariner of the rants! And it was without regret, following the example of the other passengers, he gave the crew of the Sintra his piester in recognition of the honor of crossing the line. At sunrise the next morning, the Sintra was in the latitude of Mayumba, but about a hundred miles to the west of it. If the captain of the steamer had agreed to put in at a port which belongs to the state of Luongo, what fatigues, what dangers perhaps, might have been spared Captain Antifer? Such a call would have saved him an extreme difficult journey along the coast. Urged by his uncle, Joel tried to argue the matter with the captain of the Sintra. The Portuguese knew a few words of English, as what sailor does not, and Joel, as we know, spoke this language fluently. He introduced the proposal to stop at Mayumba. It would take the steamer only two days out of her way. The expenses would be paid for the delay, the coal, the provisions, the indemnity to the owners of the Sintra, etc. Did the captain understand Jewel's proposal? Certainly, when it was explained on the chart of the Gulf of Guinea. Sailors soon understand each other in such matters. Nothing was easier than to steer eastwards so as to land this half-dozen passengers at Moyumba, provided the passengers were willing to pay. But the captain refused. He was freighted for Luongo. He would go to Luongo. From Luongo, he was bound to San Paul de Luanda. And to San Paul de Luanda, he would go and nowhere else, even if they bought the ship for her weight in gold. Such were the expressions he used, which Joel clearly understood, and translated to his uncle. Terrible was Antifer's anger, and fearful the broadside of oaths he let fly at the captain. If it had not been for the intervention of Tregmaine and Jewel, Antifer, in a state of mutiny, would have been sent as a prisoner to the hold for the rest of the voyage. Two days afterwards, in the evening of the 21st of May, the Sintra stopped before the long sandbank, which defends the coast of Luongo, and landed with her launch the passengers in question. A few hours afterwards, she was off again on her way to San Paul, the capital of the Portuguese colony. End of chapter 23